just from the ground is so crucial. We thank all of you for joining us, and we hope that you will come back soon. Please be careful. Uh, the risks you've already been taking uh, are very moving, and we want to know more about what's been happening on the ground. Not enough information on this, but more to come. We will be back. You are listening to Flashpoints on Pacifica Radio. My name is Dennis Bernstein. wraps it up for another edition of Flashpoints. Our executive producer is Dennis Bernstein. Our roving producer and producer of Flashpoints in Espanol is Miguel Gavilan Molina. Our technical director is Mike Biggs. For more information about the show, to listen to or download archived episodes, log on to flashpoints.net or visit our SoundCloud page at soundcloud.com forward slash flashpoints. For questions or comments about Flashpoints, you can contact Dennis at DennisJBernstein at gmail.com. Thank you for listening. listening to KBOO Portland 90.7 FM and KBOO.FM online. At KBOO we accept many kinds of vehicle donations. We accept fuzzy vans, broken cars, zippy scooters, seaworthy boats, well-worn farm equipment, family-sized SUVs, old jet skis, and more. If your vehicle has a clean title, we can take it as a donation. If your vehicle isn't working, we can work with that too. Call 877-KBOO-123. That's 877-526-6123. Or go to our website, kboo.fm forward slash vehicle. KBOO has a number of special t-shirts we've created just for you during our month of special programming. Whether you are a metalhead, a punk rocker, a bluegrass fan, or a feminist, we have a t-shirt for you. Wear it proudly in support of KBOO Community Radio. Go to kboo.fm slash t-shirts to see all the designs. All proceeds go to support the work of KBOO Community Radio. Today we're going to learn some science, food science. In the second half of the show, we'll listen to a keynote presentation from the EcoFarm Conference held virtually this past January. I had the pleasure of helping to organize and produce the event and was blown away by Dr. Rupa Maria's presentation titled, Farming is Medicine. Dr. Maria draws on data from the health sciences, history, ecology, and soil science to argue that agroecology can help us reimagine our future and our health. First, let's listen to an interview with Lane Selman and Patrick Mercer about the Northern Organic Vegetable Improvement Collaborative and how they are helping organic growers select the best vegetable varieties. Their methods include taste tests where everyday eaters, like me, 
evaluate promising new varieties based on flavor and texture. I participated in their winter squash taste test, which sparked my interest in their project. I started out by asking Lane to introduce herself and Patrick. Hi, thanks for having me today. Um, my name is Lane Spellman. I am a professor of practice at Oregon State University, and I'm also the founder and director of the Culinary Breeding Network. Um, I'm here today to talk about squash uh, and a project that we work on at Oregon State University as well as other um, universities and nonprofits across the country called the Northern Organic Vegetable Improvement Collaborative. Um, we also call it NOVIC um, for short because we love acronyms. And I am joined here today by Patrick Mercer. We are trialing varieties of different vegetables to see how well they perform on organic systems. And what we have been really focused on is also making sure that they taste great. And so Patrick did a lot of work with her on methodologies for how we evaluate flavor so that we make sure that we're telling organic farmers the best varieties that, that they could grow, that grow really well and also taste great. Awesome, welcome Lane, welcome Patrick. Thanks for being here. Um, so let's talk a little bit more about what Novik is and what it does. So um, yeah, I don't know who wants to start, but tell me, tell me about some of the projects you're working on. Okay, great. When we look at what varieties perform well um, for organic systems, we need some different things, right? We need things that are gonna be able, we need varieties that are gonna be able to compete really well with weeds and then are gonna have natural disease and insect resistances. Um, they're gonna have, they are living and growing in a very different type of environment. So their like nutrient management needs are different. So we do really want to have breeders involved that are focusing specifically on breeding for organic systems. So they um, have breeding lines that uh, they're working with that are not yet commercially available. So when you open up a seed catalog, you won't see them yet. Before something is in a seed catalog, there is maybe a decade of work before that before we get to that point. What this project does is all we have about six, we have six different crops that we work with and a breeder at each of those universities is breeding one of those. And then they give us the breeding lines before they're released to grow out on a lot of different farms all over the country to see how they perform on those farms so they can improve upon them and evaluate them before they're out into the public. And so we grow out these breeding lines alongside other varieties that we know perform really well on organic farms so we can compare it to, we call that a check. And so we're we know that this is going to do well, perform well on these farms and we wanna compare it to that. And then we also um, add new varieties and other varieties that the farmers are really interested in comparing them with. So I wanna say that this is also a very, um, participatory approach of research. So the farmers are really guiding this. The, the, the original grant proposal was written with farmers um, and it takes into, you know, it's the, the most important thing to make sure that we're doing relevant work for them. So they are really leading the way with us um, to make sure that we're, we're, you know, making the right choices in which varieties that we're including in our trials, as well as what we evaluate for. 
like with peppers, the farmers will tell us it's really important to have a really fantastic leaf canopy so that there's not sun scald. So if you've ever grown peppers, you can imagine, you know, you get blister, sun blisters on your fruit because you don't have really fantastic, uh, you know, good uh, coverage from the leaves. And that can have to do with nitrogen. And so um, we just get into all these conversations also coming together with the farmers for these conversations and meetings brings to light and makes us at the university level where we're not farmers, like really understand what it is that organic farmers need out of their varieties. Patrick, do you want to add anything? My first experience with Novik was as an undergrad, like Lane said, at the Evergreen State College. And um, I remember like just learning about the project and thinking like, wow, this is so cool. And it just so happened that um, the Evergreen State College has a, a functioning organic farm and they were looking for a student to actually like run one of the daughter trials. Um, and so to be able to do that as a, as a senior, do that as my capstone, um, I kind of like got the research bug and that's what propelled me to then go on to grad school. Um, I just want to emphasize like how sort of unique this project was. I think it's really inspired a lot of new things, which is incredible. You know, organic farming is so different than conventional farming. The differences from one organic farm to the next are can be really extreme. We spend a lot of time looking for varieties that we say perform well, but Novik has so many moving parts with so many on-farm trials, so many crops, so many varieties, um, and so many people sort of like giving their feedback that it becomes like almost hyper-regional. And that's the incredible part is it's like this big, huge national project, but it works at such um, local levels. At times it can be crazy to work in that. And admittedly, like some of our extension or communication about the project is not the best if you head to the website, but I mean, reach out to anyone who's working on the project and they'll talk your ear off about all that we're learning and all the cool stuff we have going on. That's just amazing that it, it's a 10 year process before a seed might be released to be grown and by a commercial farmer. And then just to, to think that part of that process, a tiny part of it, probably get skipped a lot of the times, which the, the, is the part that I'm particularly interested in, which you're actually doing taste tests and asking different people who eat food and prepare food to actually taste different varieties to see how they're doing, to see if they are going to meet your standards. Also, I got to participate, which was really cool, in a squash taste test recently. So that was kind of why I wanted to have you guys on the show to, to talk about that too. And, you know, just for the listeners, my experience was somebody dropped off some muffin tins with little bits of squash in them. And I popped them in the oven and then did not put anything on them to make them taste any different and took a quick quiz, basically a survey to evaluate you know, the texture and the flavor, you know, a blind taste test of those, those fruits. It was fun. How do you organize the taste test? Who are you looking for to participate in those? And then what do you do with that data once you've gotten those results from people? This is the question, right? I'll go back to like, when we first started doing these, this is what the Culinary Breeding Network came out of actually was we were, um, one of the crops is in Novik. Uh, we, we have these crops that we always work with. And then we kind of have our farmer's choice crop so that there is a opportunity for farmers to say, we actually want you to organize trials around X, you know? And so this one year it was 
<clears throat> red roasting style, like Italian style peppers. And there was a hybrid variety that everyone loved, uh, but the seed wasn't available anymore. It wasn't available like in the quantities that they needed. Um, and this happens where, and it was a hybrid, so um, which means that it's not something you can just replace, right? You, um, a company offers that and then once it is gone, it's gone for good. We're an open pollinated. If that one um, go, that variety goes away, if you still have seed and you grow the plant and give it proper like distancing from however it pollinates itself, um, then or cross pollinates with other plants, you then can save the seed and you have the same thing. But with the hybrid, when you replant the seed, it, you get something typically different. What hybrid going, you know, hybrids are great. Uh, they're very really uniform. There's these great things about them that farmers like, right? But it also, it does pitch, keep you on this program of having to constantly buy seed from companies. So if you want to produce your own seed, you want to have an open pollinated variety. So these farmers are like, let's try to find um, a, a pepper that does really well in our climate. And for any of you guys that are gardeners out there, you know that we have a really short season, we have cool nights, so we don't get the heat units. Like we ha we can't grow every type of pepper in this type of environment. So the farmers told us what they were looking for, what they wanted, what they wanted us to evaluate for. And we we did these, these evaluations on many different farms. Um, and there was a couple of them were just like really standing out. I was like, wow, these are, and that were open pollinated. And like, these are very amazing. They're, they're really uniform, very vigorous, which are traits that you typically see in hybrids, but maybe not often in open pollinated. It can happen, but sometimes that's a complaint that open pollinated um, varieties can sometimes be not as productive as hybrids. So anyway, I was really excited about these peppers. Um, and then I asked our Novik group, I said, what should we do about tasting them? And they said, well, take a bite of it and give it like a one to five, like we would do with all kinds of other things like vigor or lodging and all these other traits that we evaluate for. We give it either a one to five or a one to nine rating. And I feel pretty confident about doing that for agronomic traits. But then for tasting, I was like, oh my God, who am I? Like. I can't be making all the decisions on like this. And I don't know if I'm particular enough, like, and I also was very uh, intimate with the varieties. So I knew which one was which, and I knew I couldn't be unbiased. So um, I decided to organize this pepper tasting. And that's kind of, that was the very first, like, you know, 10 years ago, the first Culinary Marine Network event, right? And so since then I've been trying to figure out how the heck to do taste tests. Um, and I feel like every single one, you know, for a while there, I was doing differently to try to, because I am not a sensory scientist and there's a whole, you know, science behind all of this. How do we do this? We have to keep things very uniform. We don't want to add anything that's going to confuse things. You, if you're going to add salt, if you're going to add oil, everything has to be exactly the same amount. You know, it's very controlled. And then, you know, any kind of little thing can get in the way as far as like sensory stimulus. So a lot of times I'll have like the tasters put in earplugs and put on a blindfold and there's all these different ways that we've tried to do it. And, and I'm going to let Patrick tell you about his success stories <laughs> and then also what happened with this squash one. Well, thanks, Lane. I had to write notes because your your question was so good, but there were there's so much to talk about. I, we started talking about Novik, right, and and how that really centralizes farmers. And I think one of the the sort of motivation for CBN, as Lane said, was to 
to connect back to buyers too, whether they be professional chefs or those of us shopping at the farmer's market. And so when we talk about like everything kind of coming back to helping out organic farmers, um, they also have to have a market to sell into. And so just like you were saying, Emily, we want to eat food that tastes good. And for many of us, like we're willing to pay an extra buck or whatever it is for something that is of higher quality that we can really enjoy, especially when we're all stuck at home still. So um, I think that's a big part of like what we're trying to do is it's just filling in the picture because it's no longer acceptable in the marketplace for us to be selling food that just tastes okay. Like our, our expectations as eaters are now higher. Um, and that's a great thing, but it's a really challenging thing to evaluate in a scientific way. Um, and actually part of my master's thesis really looked at some of the critical assumptions that underlie um, formal sensory science. Um, you know, if you look at the history of them, they came out of military research. They actually came out of um, trying to improve the quality of military rations so that soldiers were eating more of them in World War I. Um, and they have some built-in assumptions around, um, you know, food being homogenous. And if you ever wandered through an orchard tasting fruit, it's not homogenous, even if it's the same variety. So, um, and I think that there's a lot more people who are kind of like waking up and starting to poke and prod at those things um, I mean, who's to say, like, who's a better taster? Um, and keep in mind, the first people who set up this system were rich white men. And, like, we know this narrative, right? So I think a lot of what we're doing is taking that back and saying, at the end of the day, if we want people buying this food, then they should be involved in the development process. Um, I like to say that we're democratizing plant breeding in a lot of ways. The motivation and the, the efforts are there. The science is still being debated and, and the statistics. Um, in grad school, I had pretty good luck um, actually like getting clear sort of winners in a lot of my tastings. And I was surprised at this squash one that there it was just kind of a wash. Everybody thought everything was pretty good. We're just starting to figure out how to how to add in the quality and the flavor with the field and the yield and the disease resistance and really get farmers and the people who are buying this food, like the full picture of what happens behind the scenes. Yeah, you know, we might have received, like we might have gotten different results at, you know, this is like toward the end of squash season for a lot of squash in the life of the storage squash. And that's the focus of this, right? Is that we're trying to find things that, um, varieties of squash that grow well, yield well for organic farmers and then store longer um, because a lot of squash is rotting by Jane, you know, by December, let's say, you know, they can become mealy, they can lose a lot of sugars, like there's a lot of things that can happen to them. So in some way, if people think that they're good, you know, they all taste pretty good, then that's a success story in itself. 
Lane's exactly right. One of the things that I can take away from the tasting data is that the main driver of people's preference was the texture of the squash. And I think in particular, when we're talking about this late storage slot, 100% makes sense. Um, I think it's also worth pointing out that if we don't see differences between these varieties, it doesn't mean that none of them are good. It could mean that they're all good. And so kind of like the next thing on the radar is we know how to identify good flavor in plant breeding programs and in variety trials, but how do we maintain diverse flavor and diverse culinary function? And that's where we really have to go to chefs and bakers and brewers and all these different people because that's where their expertise is. Yeah, I thought that was an interesting part of tasting the squash that there, you know, we were evaluating sweetness and acidity, which with no explanation of what acidity is, you put a lot of trust in people. <laughs> and bitterness and um, kind of texture and overall, if we liked it or not, right? And I thought it was interesting because I love bitter things. Like a squash that is a little bit bitter and super sweet is awesome for me, but other people hate bitter things. And so I like what you're saying about, you know, not just picking out what the one, you know, um, squash that meets everybody's needs, but rather saying like, this is a super sweet squash that people are going to love for things where you want a super sweet squash. And this is a squash that's got a lot more like depth of flavors, nutty or bitter or whatever. And you can use it for these other sorts of things. So that's, I, I don't know. I think it's, it's, it's so interesting to do this kind of untrained science, right? Where you're just tasting things, seeing how it goes and getting, getting that data. Yeah. You know, um, I, I'm glad that you brought that up because like if we were actual sensory scientists, like we would be doing this with a trained panel. And so those types of people have, well, a lot of training and Patrick probably knows a lot more than this than I do because I have looked into it just enough to be like, wow, I'm not going to have anything to do with this <laughs> because it includes a lot of time training individuals to be on the same page as to what different words mean. It's incredibly expensive. And so it hasn't ever been something that we've been able to do in the grants that we have been working on. And I personally just haven't found it to be necessary as what the farmers I work with are asking for. I feel like when people are tasting things, we're not trained panelists. You know, I mean, like we're not trained people. We're just cons like, this is the people that are going to be eating them at the end of the day, right? Consumers. But with that in mind, farmers have said it would be really fantastic to have a flavor wheel that is kind of like what they, you see with like wine. And now you see it with coffee and beer and you see, you're starting to see it with more and more things to have these, it's a lexicon, right? A, a, a language, a vocabulary to describe flavors. They created this winter squash um, flavor wheel where we had them, there was one, so there's three species of winter squash that we are typically eating and in the Pacific Northwest. And so we, one of those, Maxima, we had them taste many different varieties of it that were raw and then also steamed and pureed. And so they tasted these, there was nothing else that was added to them. And from that, um, you know, silently blind, they wrote down like the, without any help at all, what they were experiencing. So instead of saying sweet, it's like, what do you mean sweet? Okay, fruity, it's like a fruit. Okay, let's get more specific, citrus. Okay, which citrus? Lemon, you know, okay, now key lime, you know, or whatever, keep going. But it's like, you know, when you see that flavor wheel, you're getting more specific, more specific the way you go out. That helps us. It might seem like kind of bougie and ridiculous, you know, but it does help us 
the farmers to differentiate these and how we would actually use them. We, we hope to do more of these. We have one out that's a, a winter squash flavor wheel and we'll put it on the CBN website. You can also buy a copy of it already laminated, waterproof on the Etsy site. It's pretty cool to start really thinking about what you're experiencing as you're eating it and put a word with it, like describe it. That sounds like a really cool tool. So um, you mentioned if people wanted to find the flavor wheel or hear about future projects, they could go to the Culinary Breeding Network website. Can you tell us what that is? Yes, it's just www.culinarybreedingnetwork.com. There's also the Instagram, which is just the handle is Culinary Breeding Network. And that's really up-to-date information about what's happening next if we have things coming up but also a, a glimpse of like what other you know we're following what seed growers are doing and what plant breeders have got going on and instagram is such a cool way to to especially see like the plant breeding work that is really hidden from uh the public you don't see that if you go to the YouTube site, there's an entire winter long of recordings about winter vegetables, their histories, where they're from in the world, how they've traveled around, how to cook with them, folklore, medicinal, you know, properties, all kinds of stuff. Awesome. Well, Lane, Patrick, thank you so much for being on the food show today. Thank you. Yeah, thank you so much. This was fun. Next up, we'll listen to Farming is Medicine, Transforming Our World Through Agroecology, a keynote address given by Dr. Rupa Maria at the January 2021 EcoFarm Conference. Dr. Maria is a medical doctor, writer, and farmer's wife whose book, Inflamed, Deep Medicine and the Anatomy of Injustice, will be published this summer. If you'd like to watch a video of this talk, you can see it at kboo.org slash foodshow. I hope you enjoy the presentation. Today, we're gonna to talk about farming as medicine. I wanna start by acknowledging my own ancestors and the ancestors of this land where I'm speaking to you from. My ancestors come from Punjab, India. They were warriors, farmers, healers, scientists, and artists. I was born in Ramatishaloni land where I work as a doctor at UCSF. And I'm speaking to you today from the unceded Ohlone territory of Huchin, now called Oakland, California where I live on a small urban farm with land brought together through our neighbors taking down fences. I am grateful to my ancestors for all the gifts they continually bring to my life and to the ancestors of this land for keeping me safe in this place where I grew up and this place where I raised my children. I'm grateful to the Ohlone people who I have met and who have become my friends, who have guided my own unlearning and continue to help me situate my work in the most healing alignment. And I am grateful to my husband, Benjamin Farr, a farmer, for bringing the magic of soil and seeds into my life. I dedicate my talk today to the radical memory of Amigo Bob, whose passion and presence in our lives continue to impact us in this work. I say radical because it points to the roots from the Latin radix. Amigo Bob inspired us to think about the roots, to care for the roots, and to speak from that place of relationship. What we have bared witness to in this past year alone is showing us a system frayed at its edges and a system of dysfunction. It is a system that requires desperation, our desperation. Our vulnerabilities and our violence have been exposed in ways that are irrefutable. 
The lines of power drawn sharply across the bodies of black, brown, and indigenous communities have come into sharp focus. From police violence to wildfire smoke to lungs inflamed with COVID, the resounding chorus of this time is I can't breathe. COVID has shown us the unimaginable cruelty that is required for this society to run. It is showing a society obsessed with growth where time, money, and energy are not allocated to center care. It is showing us what happens when we leave people behind, when we pretend that we are separate from the web of life and from each other. It is showing us that when we center profit over safety, health, and well-being, ultimately, we will all fail. We have watched as the ugliness of this nation revealed itself again, hardly a surprise to those of us who contend with it every day. We have buried our, ans our, our, our elders who took with them their stories, their languages, and their wisdom. We have shouldered the brunt of these multiple pandemics. As we sit together now with almost half a million people dead in the US alone, it is time for us to reimagine what the future can be and to look unflinchingly at what life around us is saying and to create another way forward. What has become abundantly clear is that we can no longer pretend to look at systems in isolation and hope to make things better. We cannot talk about soil health without also contending with the legacies of genocide of indigenous people and the destruction of the ecosystems they tended. We cannot talk about farming without talking about stolen labor and why so many black and brown people have been denied land ownership or had it taken from them, as in the case of Japanese farmers here in California. We cannot talk about agriculture without talking about our own health and the health of the planet. Everything is inextricably tangled up in a web of relations. Today, I speak to you from the culmination of my life experience as a hospital medicine doctor who has been on the front lines of healthcare for the past 19 years at UCSF. As a musician who has traveled around the world to examine the impact of social forces on health, as a mother, and as a farmer's wife, and as someone who loves good, a good story. And I have a story to share with you. It is my story. It is the story of how a doctor started to notice health problems and their connection to the living systems that were dysregulated around her. It is the story of investigating health deeply, down to the very fibers of our social fabric and the cosmologies that we have not chosen that we are forced to operate under. It is the story of a doctor who married a farmer and started reading his soil microbiology reports, noting, noting how similar they were to the ones she was seeing from the stool cultures of her patients with inflammatory bowel disease. She started to make the connection that the earth was a body like her own and the soil was the gut, the place where nutrient cycling occurred and immunity was supported. This is the story of a doctor who has decided to become a farmer and how this move was guided by patients and their stories. Taking care of people when they are sick has been one of my life's greatest privileges. If you listen carefully, people will often tell you why they got sick. Their stories have propelled, propelled my own investigation into why we are all getting sick and the ways that we are. Like the story of Lorenzo, whose name, like other patients mentioned here today, has been changed to protect his privacy. He was 36 years old when he was admitted to UCSF. He grew up as the child of Mexican immigrants and worked as a groundskeeper at a school in the Central Valley, putting Roundup on the grounds to control the weeds. 
An avid athlete, Lorenzo developed a gnawing back pain and knew that something was wrong. After several scans and tests, he was diagnosed with the most aggressive form of colon cancer I had ever seen. The last week of his life, I was working to match blood transfusions with a quickening pace of bleeding from his tumor. Eventually, we couldn't keep up and the cancer took his life only four months after diagnosis. Colon cancer is becoming much more prevalent in younger and younger people and is now the leading cause of cancer death in people under 50. As with all diseases in a racist society, mortality disproportionately impacts Black and Indigenous people. Changes in the gut microbiome are contributing to this trend, as are multiple exposures. Then there's the story of Sarah, who was 50 years old and admitted with a severe gastroenteritis caused by the dreaded bacteria Clostridium difficile. This organism is the most common healthcare-associated infection in the U.S. and causes a life-threatening diarrhea. We usually see it when someone has had a round of antibiotics where their normal gut flora die and leave space for a pathogen like C. diff to proliferate. We also see it in people who are hospitalized repeatedly or who live in a nursing home. What was striking about Sarah's case is that she had no antibiotic use and no prior hospitalization. She got C. diff in the community. And since the mid-2000s, we started noticing more cases of community-acquired C. diff. This bacteria is ubiquitous. It lives in the soil and in the guts of other animals. I remembered that Clostridium difficile is one of those organisms that remain in the soil after it is treated with glyphosate. I started to wonder if we were cultivating these organisms in our soil with our farming practices. Was the way we were treating our livestock making C. diff more prevalent? In fact, a few studies have confirmed that living close to a farm is a risk factor of getting C. diff out in the community. Overuse of antibiotics in livestock is leading to high levels of animal manure and animal manure that eventually end up in dust in our homes if we live near a farm or in our food. We must also investigate if the use of pesticides such as glyphosate is concentrating their levels in the soil. Our health is being impacted by our land use and our farming practices here in California and around the world. And our health is being impacted in a very patterned way. All of the most prevalent diseases in cultures that employ modern industrial farming techniques are diseases where inflammation plays a critical role. Even with COVID, whether you live or die is dependent on how inflamed you become. This inflammation is occurring in response to the world around us. It is not something an individual can change by making different lifestyle or shopping choices. An organic produce section or farmer's market won't make this better. This is how the human body has evolved to respond to the structures around us. But this isn't simply about farming. It is about a mindset that leads to farming in a certain way. It is about a society structured through that mindset that values extraction over every other thing extraction of resources, extraction of food, extraction of labor. And we can trace the origins of that mindset back to a time and place. And what I noticed is that a similar mindset developed in medicine around the same time and the same place. While farming and medicine both have roots that stretch back thousands of years, the version we are practicing at large today have common recent roots dating back around 600 years ago with the birth of capitalism and the colonial structures that were necessary to offer up 
stolen land, and stolen labor to make capitalism work. Farming and medicine were both parts of the colonizing of these lands, which involved destroying traditional relationships between people and their ecologies, and replacing with them with extractive ones that served colonial ends. In today's universities, farming and medicine are both taught through an ahistorical lens, which hides the legacies of land theft, genocide, and labor theft that their industries required to exist in these territories. The training is science-based, but selectively so, focusing on science that advances its agendas rather than interrogating its assumptions of power. Both farming and medicine had their education and policy shaped by philanthropic capitalists, people who stood to gain by donating huge sums to alter the ways in which we learn and practice. In medicine, the Rockefellers and Carnegies were obsessed with the potential for fossil fuels to generate pharmaceuticals. They supported the work of Abraham Flexner, who wrote a damning report in 1910 that led to shutting down of many schools of medicine in the US, including most black medical colleges. Around the turn of the 20th century, medicine here was eclectic, with different traditions all equal in the same marketplace. Flexner's report ensured that any medical colleges that taught herbalism or acupuncture were shut down, forcing all education and licensing to follow a particular science-based path. I spent hours learning biochemistry that I have never applied in the care of patients. Farming also received this special treatment, with the Rockefellers investing heavily in the Green Revolution that would forever alter, or not forever, but for now, alter the face of the earth with vast amounts of petrochemical inputs in our, in our food system. This problem continues today as Bill Gates is now the largest owner of farmland on planet Earth. The result, which is planned and manufactured, is our industries have a lot of fossil fuel-based inputs. If you're getting the Pfizer or Moderna COVID vaccine, it contains some polyethylene glycol, a food-safe antifreeze derived from petroleum. When you take a dose of Miralax, you're addressing constipation with the same substance. For farmers, they're taught that applied chemistry is a necessary component of the food system. This mindset cultivates dependencies on inputs instead of working with biological systems to enhance immunity, health, and vitality. It also creates damaging um, effects on the earth and in our societies, as we see with the recent opiate epidemic. We have lost our imaginations for how to deeply heal ourselves and care for the land that our lives depend on. In medicine and in farming, the entities we are act interacting with, viewed through the scientific lens, are inert. A patient is a machine with broken parts that needs to be repaired, who can be fixed as a sole individual. The soil is an inert substance. After the petrochemical inputs have killed the biology that lives in it, we simply replace what we think is needed because somehow we know better than microbes that have evolved over billions of years. Which brings me to my next point, which is our shared colonial capitalist cosmology, where fabricated hierarchies structure our society, systems of domination that put humans over every other living entity, including the soil and the water. It puts people of European ancestry over all other people, cis hetero men over all other expressions of humanity, one religion over all other worldviews, private property over all other expressions of being on land. This structuring is a necessary part of cultivating the desperation needed for the system to function. 
This dividing allows exploitation to occur. Both farming and medicine have been structured to value productivity over care, to generate profits rather than vitality and health. This is why you don't feel healed after you visit the doctor and why people are getting sick from the foods we are eating and why the climate is becoming more unstable from the ways we are interacting with the earth. Both systems reflect a deep distrust in life's intelligence and the relationships necessary to benefit from it. This distrust is not an accident. It is required to leave us all desperate and dependent on external inputs, which we have been led to believe that we need, but we don't need them. What we need is to immerse ourselves in life's intelligence. And there is no better place to get a close-up look at life's intelligence than by zooming in on our microbes. The most successful living creatures on Earth in terms of sheer number, adaptability, and longevity are microbes, bacteria, fungi, archaea, and viruses. It took a virus, SARS-CoV-2, to show us that we can indeed pause and deeply reimagine our future. Totally underrated in the climate discussion, microbes are responsible for most of the world's carbon and nitrogen cycling. Our food system would collapse without them, regardless of what Fritz Haber might say. Haber was the first person to fix nitrogen without the use of microbes. This led to the development of several chemical weapons, as well as nitrogen fertilizer, which has been the mainstay of industrial agriculture and the scourge of coral reefs around the world. Non-biological nitrogen has given humans the escape velocity to sever our connection to the web of life. It is the wound we must repair. The human microbiome, all of the creatures that live on us and in us, is made up of trillions of organisms, some of them vital for our own health and some of them just along for the ride. Whereas humans have 20,000 protein encoding genes, the same amount as a fruit fly, our microbes contain at least 200 million, and some of them are critical for our health. The gut microbiome, what lives inside of our intestines, sits at the crossroads of vital pathways for neurological, endocrine, and immune development. These organisms train these systems to function optimally. Enzymes from these microbes are able to digest foods that we can't, and the byproducts that they produce can be beneficial for our health or harmful, depending on what we eat and what genes these microbes possess. For example, some microbes can break down plant fibers and create short-chain fatty acids, which have multiple anti-inflammatory health benefits. Our microbiome is formed early in life. As early as 14 weeks in utero, we can, see early, we can see early clusters of bacteria in the folds of developing baby's intestines. So contrary to prior thought, the uterus is not a sterile environment and babies have their microbiome already starting inside their mother's bodies. These organisms appear to be training the immune system to tolerate the passengers who will live inside us and confer us with incredible and vital health benefits. When we are born through the vagina, we get the biggest inoculation of our microbes from our mother. Breastfeeding then selects for bacteria that create metabolic products that are critical for establishing the immune system's tone and setting up a pattern of immune health. As we grow older, 
what we feed our gut microbes and what we are exposed to shapes the gut microbiome, which is constantly changing in relationship to the foods we eat and the environment around us. Plant-based diets like the Mediterranean diet lead to our microbes creating more short-chain fatty acids, those that counter inflammation. Animal protein-based diets do the opposite, with microbes creating metabolic products that can drive inflammation. Dietary chemicals, such as emulsifiers, can strip the microbiome altogether. So in fact, you are what your microbes eat. But it isn't just diet that impacts how the microbes we carry will help or hinder our health. The biodiversity of the microbiome also matters. Most diseases of inflammation are associated with a microbiome that lacks biodiversity. And what causes the biodiversity to drop is a function of multiple exposures. In fact, it is the exposome, which is the sum of our lifetime exposures, which starts with what our mothers are exposed to. Actually, it starts with what our great-grandmothers are exposed to. It includes everything from how walkable a city is to our lifestyle choices like diet and smoking. It includes how much money we make, how much debt we carry, and what chemicals we may be exposed to. It also includes how stressed we are, our histories, the structures of power we are subjected to, including racism, sexism, ableism, and caste. Our cosmologies and our stories are also part of the exposome, how we understand the world, how safe we perceive it to be, and what our role is in it. We are learning that certain exposomes are highly inflammatory, where racism, debt, chemical exposures, and processed foods all add up to create a potent mix. Here, the immune system is not dysregulated. It is reacting appropriately to a damaging world. Those are, those are exposomes that denude our, microbio sorry, our microbial biodiversity, removing one of the most effective defenses against inflammation. And on the other side of the spectrum, there are healthy exposomes that promote it. When scientists looked at the gut microbiota of different communities around the world, they found that indigenous people living traditional lifestyles have the most biodiverse guts on the planet. They also do not suffer from the diseases, um, the modern diseases of inflammation. Their rates of heart disease, diabetes, and cancer are very low. Age-related hypertension, an expected outcome of aging in industrialized societies whose slope starts increasing when children go to school, is non-existent in these cultures. These indigenous groups possess some ancestral strains of microbes that are excellent at quelling inflammation. These strains actually don't exist in modern industrialized people. Taking a probiotic pill to inoculate ourselves won't work because everything around us will, will, will kill them. They require a certain environment to thrive, and that is not one that contains PFAS, deforestation, and rampant white supremacy. When it comes to these superorganisms, we have lost touch with these ancestors. And as you can see, this graph shows that the least biodiverse gut that they studied was the urban, the US urban dweller. Indigenous people are not only tending the most biodiversity inside their bodies, they are also tending most of the Earth's entire biodiversity outside their bodies. They are masters at harmonizing ecological systems. 
This isn't because they have some special sauce. We all come from indigenous tribes somewhere back in our lineage, before Hinduism, before Christianity, and before these systems developed that would seek to concentrate power in fewer and fewer hands. Their mastery is because of their worldview, their cosmology that centers relationship and care. The cosmology that has structured this society is characterized by systems of domination, and the outcome is damage and inflammation. We cannot hope to tweak one little area and think we can gain ground in transforming outcomes. We must wholly take on the entire world view, which leads to the next question. As we face the challenges in the 21st century, we have to get real with ourselves. A softer, gentler colonialism or a fuzzier, greener capitalism cannot give us the outcomes we need to secure the health of future generations. Having black and brown leadership in systems that are inherently structured to oppress people of color will not adequately bring about the kinds of transformation we need in the exposome to get better health. What we need is another mindset. And lucky for you, I spent the last year detailing what that looks like in this book. I had the opportunity to write with my friend and comrade, the incomparable genius of Raj Patel. It comes out in August this year, and I look forward to sharing the incredible teachings we have gathered from our indigenous friends, farmers, activists, and scholars from around the world. We write about several, deep kinds of several kinds of deep medicine to address the challenges we face. And one of the most important, because it reframes how we care, is agroecology. Because in agroecology, there is a centering of care that is centering not on the self or the individual. Care of the self actually occurs by way of caring for the other. By tending the soil and the relationships around it, by giving, what, giving it what it needs to thrive, the plants we grow in it will thrive and we will thrive as an outcome. To undo the damaging mindset that got us here, we must start with repairing broken relationships with each other and with the land. We must abolish damaging practices. Just as our bodies hold trauma and remember, impacting our immune systems for generations, the land holds trauma and remembers. We must start our healing of the soil simultaneously with our healing of relationships. What do some of those best practices look like? Well, for the soil, we know it's maximizing soil microbiology. So instead of playing whack-a-mole with every chemical that comes to market that is damaging soil, um, the soil life, the soil web of life, we need to wholesale abolish anything that damages this microbiology because our life and our health is dependent on it. At the same time, we need to maximize giving land back to indigenous people and entering the proper relationship. We need to liberate the land from private property perspectives and look at new ways and new models of being together as settlers on stolen land. For the soil, we need to minimize soil disturbance. So practicing low-till or no-till um, farming to interrupt ripping apart the complex um, mycelial biology that's happening there. And on the social plane, we have to minimize racist exclusion and oppression, dismantling those systems that require landowners in California to be predominantly white and land workers to be predominantly people of color. For the soil, we increase mass and quality of plant and animal biology. 
In our social systems, we increase cooperative ownership, changing our structures of labor. In the plant and soil world, we ensure that there's continuous living plant coverage on our ground to keep the, 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 the soil wet and healthy. And in our culture, we need continuous care for each other. In order for this work to be possible, we must refuse to participate in systems that require constant growth, ones that demand profitability. We must start building systems that allow for this kind of circular flow of wealth and health between our planet, our societies, and all living creatures. So how do we do this? Well, we organize. We start creating stronger ties in our communities to force the agenda. A shout out to the farmers in India who are showing us how power will cave to massive organizing. Farmers control the food system. Ultimately, none of us can live without those who grow the food. That's a tremendous leveraging point. The road ahead is not easy nor simple, but it is possible with perseverance. And it is possible with community. The story of the doctor who becomes a farmer is not the solution to our problems. No individual story is, and it never can be. It is our collective work together that will get us to where we need to be to ensure a livable and viable planet for our great grandchildren. I look forward to building more ties with you in this, in our farming community, as the doctor turned farmer who will be with you alongside with my hands in the dirt, looking under a microscope at the soil, learning with you in this time of great reckoning and great turning. And my learning and unlearning is continuing here in Ramatushaloni territory, where I was born, where my grandfather died, and where my sons arrived on planet Earth. Together with Jonathan Cardero and Greg Castro, we are engaging the Peninsula Open Space Trust in hopes to move 38 acres of farmland back into Ramatushaloni hands so that they can start the healing. This would be their first land holding in their traditional homeland since the genocide. It is an honor to work with them to advance their ancestral responsibilities, to continue their culture, to take care of the earth, and to take care of all people living here. By correcting our relationships and entering this work as farmers on indigenous land, we start in the right manner. The food grown here will be medicine. This project is a joining together of several entities. The Ramatushaloni, Association of Ramatushaloni with Top Leaf Farms, our urban rural agroecological farming business I founded with my husband, farmer Benjamin Farr. We are working with Lunavase Farm run by Tarun Maria and Sofia Pablo Hushino, who currently operate a CSA supporting local BIPOC farmers. And the Deep Medicine Circle, an entity we are creating to do this work of healing, of, of, of healing the wounds of colonialism through food, medicine, story, and learning. The Farming is Medicine project starts with land rematriation back into the hands of the original people from, who it, from whom it was stolen so that the healing may start. We will be employing BIPOC farmers um, as ecological stewards, independent of how much they produce, reframing their work to being primarily to care for the soil and the water. We will be growing a diverse array of crops using agroecological methods with long-range production cycles to support restoring the soil, building up water, and revitalizing the wild edges. The healthy food that we create is then liberated from the market economy 
and will go to area food hubs. We are partnering with the American Indian Cultural District up in San Francisco and UCSF's Food Pharmacy and exploring a partnership with the Tenderloin Neighborhood Development Corporation. TNDC, who has, um, has enlisted Top Leaf to create several rooftop farms on their new affordable housing in San Francisco. They are the only nonprofit housing developer in the city. They are making a storefront for their members to get food without the exchange of money. That work is supported through the sugary drinks tax. These food hubs will give away the food to those who need it the most, those whose exposomes are toxic from the creation of poverty and racism. Our plan also includes creek restoration for support for bringing the salmon back and education of urban youth to form an urban rural corridor that links farms we are building on rooftops in the urban environment with this rural project. Our goal is to teach the next generation of farmers how to grow food at multiple scales in correct relationship while simultaneously supporting a thriving surrounding ecology. And we will watch the outcomes to share the healing with our community and the data with our local policymakers. So we will be engaging with storytelling as medicine, bringing the stories back to the land. We will be evaluating farmer happiness, stress, and health. We will be watching the soil for how it changes under these practices, and watching the water for how it recuperates, bringing back the salmon, as well as evaluating dietary um, pattern changes in the people who receive the food. We believe the food system can be transformed by scaling these kinds of small projects, not in size, but by staying small and implementing new economic models that prioritize care of the earth, of the people, of the salmon, of the water. We would love to see a hundred such small farms go up all over Ohlone territory, starting with land rematriation. Learning from COVID, which spread around the entire planet in one year, we can scale this like a virus. The next phase of our work together with our Ramatish friends includes fundraising for them to purchase a 640-acre site across the street from this 38-acre farm. This would be the site of their homecoming. We are developing a shared vision that includes land management through agroforestry, maintaining wildlife corridors, the creation of a village, a place for BIPOC people to heal their wounded severance from land, an agroecological center to participate in the global dialogue around land-based and seed-based pedagogies, and a healing center to decolonize food and medicine. I never realized that my life would take me down this amazing road, and I am so grateful for the compass in my chest that guides me. Apparently, stewarding these clinics into being is part of my work. I was honored to be invited to do this in Lakota, Dakota, Nakota territory after the Dapple Camp came down at Standing Rock. That work is well underway with the leadership of tribal health workers Tasha Peltier and Elena Eagleshield at the helm. This clinic is entering a novel partnership with a tribally owned wind farm. It will be the first wind-funded free clinic to decolonize medicine in this land. An innovative example of what we can do if we reimagine our systems to serve us instead of injure us. In order to transform our world, in order for health to be possible for all beings, we must get radical. We must start at the roots. And farming is a great way to do that because our food and how we grow, it ends up becoming part of who we are. We must start with rematriating the land that was stolen. 
and enter proper relationship with indigenous peoples and learn to support them furthering their cultural agendas, um, which deeply center around care. We must reintegrate farming back into the web of life, learning from life's intelligence and accepting the humility that comes with it. We must liberate farmers from the market economy, the farmers and the food. We must value care and thriving over production. We must dismantle white supremacy in food systems and in all systems. That means if you hear doctors talking about the connection between the soil and gut microbiome with one breath, and then telling you that COVID is something you don't have to worry about and wear a mask in the other breath, when COVID is killing black and brown people disproportionately, you have to look critically at that and start asking some questions. We need everyone to get involved with dismantling that toxic system. We must feed all the people with fossil fuel free food. It is time to rid the, the food industry of these inputs. They're killing the planet, they're killing the soil and it's killing the people. We must create a declaration of rights of the soil, the water and, and the air. And I know several groups who are, are imagining this and, and furthering this work and we should support it. And we must center soil health as human health because our health is vitally dependent on the microbes that are in the soil. That their flourishing is our flourishing and anything that harms that flourishing in the soil must be abolished. It is no longer time to be playing whack-a-mole with every chemical taking 10 years to ban one after the other when you know 30,000 hit the market every few years. We don't have time for that anymore. We must center the health and vitality of our ecosystems. And we must reframe farmers and farm workers as truly the stewards of our health. Because I can prescribe insulin, but I can't stop the diabetes from coming because the diabetes is being caused by these systems of inflammation. Farmers and farm workers and how they steward the land are vitally critical towards stemming this tide of inflammation. I will leave you with this great quote by Cesar Chavez. To make a great dream come true, the first requirement is a great capacity to dream. The second is persistence. That's it for today's episode of The Food Show. If you missed any of the show or want to watch Dr. Maria's talk, visit kboo.org slash foodshow. Find us on Instagram at PDX Food Show and catch the next show on April 21st. Thanks for listening. You're listening to KBOO Portland. Coming up next is Jazz Lives right after these news headlines. Bienvenidos a un breve informativo en su estación comunitaria KBOO 90.7 FM.